Hey everybody, welcome to the Vela News Podcast. I'm Ben Delaney. We've got a good show for you today. We are talking with Ashton Lambie, the world record holder in the individual pursuit and recent world champion in said discipline. But first, we are speaking to the world champion turkey, Bijou Thomas. Wait, I mean the world champion chef, outside's house chef, Bijou Thomas. How are you, sir? Welcome to the podcast. Dude, I can't believe Ashton Lambie's got to follow this. I, uh, you know, I, I, I hope he's ready for this, but I'm doing great, sir. Thank you. Yeah, I, I hope he is also emotionally prepared. You know, <laughs> you, you've got the looks, but he's got the mustache. So, you know, it's, it could, it's an even match. <laughs> yeah, well, he's got a few more world records too, but that's okay. That's a whole other set of occasions that we save that for. Absolutely. So, BJ, you've been uh, just kicked off a new series with us on Velo News with Velo Kitchen, where pro riders will do a, a Bijou challenge. Like, hey, Bijou, here's here's my best recipe for this particular thing. What do you got? Or, hey, Bijou, I need an idea for something to make this weekend. And then you respond um, by cooking up some deliciousness uh, on video with a recipe to follow. So, listeners, that's something you should check out on VelaNews.com. And also, you know, be sure to be following VelaNews on Instagram, where you can see Bijou at work making the good stuff. And you can even send in a request or a challenge of your own to Bijou. So for instance, uh, this week we had a, uh, a pad tie, a holiday themed pad tie, uh, with a pumpkin pad tie with a challenge from Pete Stetna. Bijou, what was, uh, what was the spin there? What's the backstory on the Bijou slash Alan Lim pad tie? Pad tie has got such a long and storied history with, um, the current generation of American road cyclists, starting with all the TIA Kreft guys back in the mid-2000s when Alex House and Stetna were still juniors, our U23 riders, they were all getting fed Pad Thai by Alan. And then from there, a lot of these riders have fond memories of having Pad Thai before a big event. Um, ben King before every U.S. national race. Uh, Pete, before every major road race, you know, Big Wayne makes it for him or uh, before every major gravel race. And so when Pete sent that video from a pumpkin patch up in Michigan, I was like, dude, we got to do pumpkin pad thai, not only for the alliteration, but also because it <laughs> sounded delicious. And, and it was indeed delicious. And it's a yeah, good fall festive dish. Yeah. And if somebody out there right now today is like, good Lord, I cannot eat any more Thanksgiving food, what could I make that has pumpkin in it? Um, pumpkin pad thai. I highly recommend that. Now, speaking of Thanksgiving food, we are, we're coming up on this, this holiday and you've got uh, not what one, but uh, two quick recipes for us. Those of us who are scrambling in the lead into Turkey day. Uh, yes. What do you, what do you got for us, Bijou? All right. First, first things first, I know a lot of you, um, road cyclists out there. Well, just cyclists in general. I know most of us wait till the last minute to do anything. So I'm assuming Guilty. that many of you will be waking up today, which is Thanksgiving Eve. And some point this evening, you'll go looking for a turkey, which will be rock, <laughs> frozen rock solid. And because there are no fresh turkeys left on Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So you may as well forget about it. It is not happening. Um, and if you're going to go get a frozen turkey, the thing you want to do to thaw it out is not leave it in your car overnight, all right? 
Don't thaw it out in your car. Don't leave it out on the kitchen counter. Don't stash it under the bed. Those are not the places <laughs> to thaw it out, even though it sounds like a good idea. If you, if you have a frozen turkey, what you want to do is make a brine. Ben, have you made a brine? I have not made a brine. I'm, I'm your target market here. I am last minute and desperate and clueless. So, so yes, <laughs> I, I, I had last year. I did put the turkey, the frozen turkey, in bed with me, much to my wife's chagrin. But uh, tell me how to make a brine, Bijou. You, sir, in that case, have I got a brine for you? All right. For anybody who's never done a brine, one thing to think about is at the end of it, you might not get the crispiest skin on the outside of the turkey, but you will have a thoroughly delicious and juicy bird all the way through. And you know, there's a lot of different techniques people love this time of year. You hear from all the guys who are doing barbecue turkey, smoked turkey, deep fried turkeys. Those are all very advanced techniques, which... Uh, That's above my pay grade. Give me the give me the simple brine. <laughs> you should definitely do that or go to someone's house who's making smoked turkey or deep fried and definitely have it because it's delicious. Brining is simply making a sugar and salt solution and dunking the turkey in it overnight. And that's really it. So what happens is the turkey absorbs all the flavor, all the sugar, the saltiness, whatever whole herbs you add into it, and it gives out that flavor. And as a bonus, if you're starting with a frozen turkey, by dunking it in water overnight, it'll thaw evenly and in a manner that is safe for your health and overall well-being. <laughs> so... What you want to do, what you want to do is first, um, depending on how big of a turkey you got, there's a bazillion recipes online to find. If you go down the spice aisle, there's already little plastic packs with brine mix in it. They're all some combination of salt, sugar, some whole spices. And whole spices typically for turkey season is bay leaves, maybe some peppercorns, maybe some juniper. But that's really very basic. I just put in sugar, salt, bay leaves, and some peppercorns because I don't want my turkey tasting like too many weird things. I'm still very traditional, but I don't know if you know this about me, but I love my turkey to just taste like turkey. I want my turkey to taste like stuffing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> just straight just straight up the middle. Just straight up the middle. Or I want yeah. my turkey to taste like cranberry sauce. Salt, sugar, water, and a spice or two. Yeah. This, this, is, this is doable. This is doable. So now here's what you do. First, you go find a pot that you can entirely put the turkey into. So it can be a five-gallon bucket, as long as it's, you know, food-safe bucket, something large enough that you can put the whole bird, frozen bird, into. And you begin um, by bringing some water to boil, put some sugar in there, and this will vary depending on the size of the turkey you got. Just I'll put some notes in uh, as part of our podcast so you can look it up and kind of come up with ratios. But you put in a good amount of sugar, a good amount of salt, let that dissolve in hot water, then you take it off the stove, let it fully cool, either add some ice, add some cold water, whatever you need to do to let it cool before you put the frozen turkey in there and let it sit overnight. If it's a small bird, just a few hours, it'll thaw it out. That's really it. Then you take it out of the brine solution, you shake it off, you pat it dry, and you put it into a warm oven and let it cook however you want to cook it. Nice. I am feeling confident about this. Thank you for that. Now, brine and cook, buddy. Brine and cook. So that's the that's the bird. Now that's the bird. Now give us the simple stuffing. So, stuffing. Believe it or not, I think most people only 
have Thanksgiving dinner for the stuffing <laughs> because that really is the best part. Well, right? And the pie, but yeah, the main course well, stuffing, yeah, pie for dessert. Pie is, pie is pretty good too. Uh, and most of us, when we think about stuffing, the really fond, awesome memories we have of stuffing are those beautiful old red boxes of stofers or stovetop stuffing, right? Like the stuff in the box that just tasted like something very familiar. And Ben, believe it or not, you can make this your very own self with just a handful of ingredients. What you need to start with is dry bread cubes, right? So you can do this like in restaurants. Whenever we had leftover scraps of bread or the heel of bread, we throw it into a bin each week. And by the end of the week, it turned into hard chunks of bread. We could turn it into whatever. So you want to get like a really firm bread, really you know thick bread. Um, this is great for leftover stale bread, whatever. Cut it into cubes. Either let it air dry over a couple of days, which you're not going to have if you're starting today, or just spread it flat on a baking sheet, put it into the oven for a half hour or so at about 300 degrees until it gets really hard and crunchy. When you make stuffing, if you start with soft bread, like really fresh, soft bread, it's just going to turn into mushy bread goo. You want hard, <laughs> crunchy bread. And then... The primary flavor in traditional American stuffing is always like celery, a little bit of sage, a little bit of marjoram, but it's mostly celery. So what you do, you have this, put a bunch of dry bread in a big old glass baking dish or a metal baking dish, saute some minced onions, add in some minced celery, saute all that together real good. Then you go get yourself what is called poultry seasoning. Now, poultry seasoning, if you've never had it, has no poultry in it. It is just um, seasoning that would go great on poultry. So it is vegan. It's got, you know, just different blend of spices in it. So you start with dry bread cubes. You saute up some onions, some celery, add some poultry seasoning to the onion celery mix, mix that in with the bread, add a little olive oil or butter, and then barely wet it with some stock, chicken stock, veg stock, whatever stock you got. Don't get the bread soaked. Just get it wet, and then it all goes in the oven. Bake it until it comes out golden and delicious. You can top it with cheese. You can do whatever you want on top of that. And Ben, did you know, this is one of the best uh, year-round meals you can have as an athlete, um, endurance sports guy, person that you are. You can make it all the time, throw some eggs on it, have it for breakfast, have it for lunch, bring it in the car for your recovery after a ride. Fantastical. That never occurred to me, but that does sound a lot better than having turkey leftovers for weeks and weeks after, which is yeah, which is usually the Thanksgiving hangover meal. But yes, I'll take you up on that. Yeah, and essentially, you know, Italians make panzanella, which is not liquidy, but it's a bread salad. We have bread puddings. We have bread. All of these are just ways to use up leftover bread in really creative and beautiful fashion. So I love bread salads. Uh, if any of you listeners come to my house, I will make you a bread salad. It'll be lovely. <laughs> it'll be great. Um, I'm assuming of all the millions of listeners out there today um, that at least eight of you are going to be dealing with frozen turkeys later. So hopefully that helped. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. My my wife and family, thank you uh, in advance for helping save, save and, <laughs> and flavor the bird. So th thank you for that. And listeners, again, be sure to check out all of Bijou's delicious recipes. You can find them on Velo News in the new Velo Kitchen series. Uh, many of you may already have one or more of Bijou and Alan's Feed Zone uh, cookbooks. 
and check him out on Instagram. Either you know follow the man himself or just watch for him popping up on uh, the Velo's Instagram where you can send him a Velo Kitchen challenge of your own and he may take you up on it and cook something delicious for you. Yeah, so, send me something hard. Send me something <laughs> intense, people. Oh, hey, hey, man, also as part of the as part of the stuffing thing, I'm going to list one of my favorite stuffings from uh, Better Nutrition is this beautiful, like really super cheesy cauliflower and bread stuffing. So if you want to fancy up your dinner, we're going to share that. Plus, I'm going to share a very, very basic homemade stuffing that I think everybody can enjoy. Sounds good. We will put links to this in the podcast notes uh, and, and on velonews.com. Well, Bijou, Chef Bijou Thomas, my friend, thank you very much. Happy Thanksgiving to you and uh, look forward to speaking with you soon. Thank you, Ben. Have a great day, bud. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. And now we are going to venture into the world of Ashton Lambie, a world where three world records have been achieved, a world championship title has been won, and a world where a self-described hayseed can train in a Montana barn with little more than a weight rack in a smart trader and take down the likes of Philippe Ogana, a superstar with the exceptionally well-funded Ineos Grenadiers team. Welcome to the VeloNews podcast, Ashton Lambie. Great to see you. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. That was a great intro. Jeez. <laughs> That's all I got. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> no, of course not. This is going to be all good stuff. And I'm super excited to talk to you about a few things. Uh, you know, certainly the the world's stuff, the the world record, the world title, how those two efforts uh, compare the preparation for this in terms of the gear and the the training, especially the the middle distance training uh, you did with yeah. Chris, um, and then also like how you mix in your you know exploration and adventure w- at the same time as you're achieving these very high level things. So, but but first, mm-hmm. I want to I'm hoping you can walk us through how you came to track racing to begin with, because that also is an unusual story. What what the heck is a grass track? How did you find a grass, quote unquote, velodrome in, in Lawrence, Kansas? And how did that, what was the initial appeal? Yeah. Um, so I worked at Sunflower Outdoor and Bike Shop, which I feel like you guys just did a piece on for Belgian Waffle Ride. Yeah, we're just out there and Dan Hughes gave me the tour and yeah, a lot of, lot of fun history there. Yeah, tons of fun history. Um, yeah, so I worked there for several years, and I feel like now that you're aware of it, you'll find sunflower alumni like all over the cycling industry, which is kind of cool. <laughs> uh, so, so drop some drop some other names for us. Who who else has come through Sunflower? Um, well, like I, uh, my buddy Andy White, that I still keep in touch with, has done photographs at Unbound and when it was Dirty Kanza before for several years. Um, my buddy Colin Earhart is now a, I think, an outside rep for Shimano. Yes. Um, so, like, you know, just kind of within the industry. Um, Walter Summers works at Garmin, and he's, you know, always in the Garmin, uh, you know, the booths at the different events that those guys do um, and still races and stuff. So, yeah, there's, like, quite a few people floating around. It's kind of fun that a lot of us have stayed in the industry. So you're working there on Sunflower, and and this is how you get get wind of this grass track. Yeah. So like you know, obvi- uh, like sunflowers played say a pretty pivotal role in gravel development. You know, between Dan's experience um, and then just being a supporting shop for a ton of 
like small, you know, grassroots gravel races in the, in Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma. Um, and so, you know, just working there, like I started doing a lot of gravel races and I've always been like a pretty stocky guy. And so I was like, you know, looking around at the, at these gravel races and being like, Oh, you know, maybe, you know, I'm not built like a marathon runner. Like maybe there's something I could be a little bit better at. Um, and Colin had, I think he's, I hope he still has it. He had a surly steamroller. Um, that was like, I mean, that's like the ultimate grass track bike, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he had like, you know, some cool hand built wheels. I mean, like a real bike shop employees bike where like everything was just perfect. And yeah, so he let me borrow that and I went out to the grass track. Um, and then I think like my first night there, you know, won every event did pretty well. And I was like, man, this is really fun. You know, tracks have bankings, you know, different tracks are of different lengths. You know, typically it's wood or concrete we're talking about, you know, the banking banking will differ. The length will differ. Um, I've never seen this grass track. I've seen a few photos, but there's, 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 it's, it's a, it's a flat surface. Yes. It's dead flat. Yeah. Um, so really like the pole lane is just like, you know, maybe a three to four inch wide, like strip of dirt where uh-huh. most people ride. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but otherwise, like, I mean, I think they use it for grass track after the first cutting of hay in the spring or like late spring, usually. Um, and then that's, it's kind of opened up to the grass track. There's like usually a six to eight week season, um, you know, while there's like hay bales sitting off in the, in the yard. Cause it's just like open pasture the rest of the year. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that's it. Yeah. And so what, what type of events were you doing there? Um, I mean, we did pretty simple stuff, you know, like a scratch. I think they might've done a points race, um, like a, a 2k pursuit of, I don't know if we did a kilo or we did a 500, but something, you know, a, a short event short-timed event, a long-timed event. Um, I think we might have done an elimination. And then the the guy who runs it, Pat Schlager and Bill Anderson, both of those guys are like trackies. So they like doing like, you know, some of the more unconventional events, like, you know, chariot races, snowball races, winning out. Yeah, I'm not very good at that stuff. Now, I know missing out. I don't know winning out. What is what is that for? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I know either. You might have to ask us <laughs> on that one. All right. All right, so that that's where the original bug came from. That, yeah. That's a long way from there to Aguas Calientes, Mexico. So let's fast forward there, uh, mid-August of of this year, where where you came in to set a world record in the individual pursuit, which is a four kilometer effort. And this would be mm-hmm. you'd already set the world record twice in this event. That's I think something that's important to note. This was not your first time going for it. Yeah. So what, when and why did this plan begin? So the, the first two times you set a world record, it was in competition at Pan American Track Championships, uh, 2018, 2019, uh, 2018 in Mexico, 2019 in Bolivia. Actually twice in Bolivia. Twice in Bolivia. Fourth, fourth time, yeah. Oh, thank you for the correction. This <laughs> Pretty minor one. No, no it's, it is a major difference. Thank you. Yeah. So fourth time. So I have 2018... Mexico, 2019, Bolivia. Two, twice, twice in Bolivia. Twice yeah. in Bolivia so, in 2019. I see. Yeah. So this is just routine at this point. You've been setting world records like it's just a little bit. Just, just routine. Show up and do it. But but this year, you went in to go under four minutes. No one 
by definition of a world record. No one had ever done this before. Where did this idea come from and uh, how did this come to be? Well, it was a little lever of like the the Hoob Watt bike. We, we called it like the record orgy when it was like we were <laughs> going to go to Bolivia and, you know, all of we're going to go for the TP, the IP, the kilo and the hour uh-huh. and take you know, like build, build this sort of, uh, UCI C2 event. So we could all do it in competition, have really ideal conditions in Bolivia. Um, and that was something that happened after the UCI did that rule change where they didn't allow trade teams. And there, there was that big switch from like, okay, we're going to move track from winter to summer. We're not going to allow trade teams and we're going to call them nation's cups instead of world cups. So that all happened. That announcement came out in like 2019 and so it was like the end of the 2019 season when they sort of said that they're like okay we're going to do berlin world championship in 2020 and then there's going to be a big gap over the summer uh you know because olympics were supposed to be that summer right and then and then COVID happened and so that kind of like you know on top of on top of all the rule changes and everything that changed everything because we we couldn't go to Bolivia because they were using the track as like a medical facility, um, and then they Bolivia also had like a a government overthrow. Like I remember talking to Ramiro, the director down there, and he was like, "Oh yeah, we've got a new government," and I was like, "Oh okay, so you got like a new head of cycling federation," and then I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal that was like the Bolivian president was like escorted to the border by the military. And I was like, Oh, like that kind of new government. (laughs) So we might be able to go down there. This could make things a little tricky. I mean, that kind of happened like that, that whole summer happened of 2020. Um, You know, I got a medal at worlds with a four Oh three there. And in the back of my mind, I was like, man, you know, like even, um, you know, the idea of going sub four had kind of popped up then you know in, in that 2019 2020 season between like me and john and filippo you know it's like okay someone's gonna do it within the next 18 months um and so when bolivia didn't happen and then you know like obviously not making it to tokyo was a big disappointment and i was like man you know i've got i've got the time i've got the energy like i really like i want to be the first one to do this um and yeah, it, you know, the pieces kind of came together. Like I'd heard from um, a few people that there was a group going down there to Aguas Calientes. They're really familiar with world records. Um, and yeah, it all worked out. Now for listeners who are wondering why someone who has set a world record four times didn't get into the Olympics, that's because there was not the individual pursuit in the Tokyo Olympics. It was a right team pursuit. So the, the, the nation needed to qualify. Correct. And, that's, that's and that. it was, and we'd known that since like the winter of 2019. So it's not like it was just like brand new news. You know, I'd had a while to kind of sit with that. Sure. Sure. Now tell me about how your training changed, because again, this is not, not your first run at it, but uh, you were working with, Chris de la Sega at the athletic strength Institute on a, mm-hmm. a, a tweaking the training with, you know, what you were calling middle distance training for, for runners. And it seems like the 4k is a funny distance in that it's not a super long threshold. 
where you sit yeah. and it's not a full out anaerobic sprint. It's this hell on earth in between. You've always been training for that for years. So what, what was different about how you were training before and what did Chris add to the, to the picture? I think the way I'd been training before was like a little more traditional. Like I've worked with Ben Sharp for a long time. Um, and I mean, he, we did a lot of really specific intervals when we worked together. Um, and I think he really taught me a lot about like power and zones and time in zones and all that stuff. Um, but Chris kind of brought a, a fresh mind and aspect to it where he doesn't have necessarily that like, oh, well, you know, in cycling, you do this base season and then, you know, you always have to do this volume and always about the road miles and everything. And he came to it with like a really like a sports science background and working with a lot of track and field athletes. And he was like, you know, we kind of sat down and looked at training and he was like, well, why are you doing these long rides? Like, um, you know, mile, mile runners don't do this stuff. Like they don't go out and run half marathons on the weekends, which is what you're doing. Um, and I was like, ah, I mean, yeah, like, I guess when you think about it like that, like that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so when I tried to break it down and do like the specific energy systems, you know, it's an anaerobic endurance event. So you need that anaerobic capacity. Um, so you kind of get there two ways. You either build your anaerobic power. So you're not burning as much out of the gas tank. You become more efficient. Um, or you build the size of the gas tank and you just spend time in that zone as much as you can. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like when, so I spent the summer, uh, out in Montana with my partner, Christina Birch at her family's ranch. And, um, yeah, that's what it was. We just did all these really specific intervals, um, you know, on the track bike, on the turbo and erg mode based around that whole kind of energy systems, like anaerobic power, anaerobic capacity. So you just target that rough power and just train at that power mm -hmm. and then uh, do very little aside from that. That was it. Yeah. I mean, like me and Christina are both really big into gyms. So it was nice to like be able to do that stuff together um, and have like, a, you know, super solid training partner out there. And cause I mean, obviously the gym is still a big part of it, you know, cause it's, we've talked about it where it's not necessarily like, just total watts um there's also sort of like uh you know power at torque and i think the power in that position and you need gym work to hit both of those yeah. so it's not just like oh well if you can if you can spend four minutes at this power you'll go this fast right like there's a little bit more to, you want it we want it to be that simple but there is a little bit more to it than that right yeah and clearly like just sitting up or standing out of the saddle climbing uphill and achieving a power number is quite different than tucking yourself totally into this tiny slippery uh bullet shaped package and producing that same watts and doing that off of a standing start you know like getting that gear up to speed quickly without totally blowing yourself up is hard. Cause like, you know, my max power isn't anything insane. It's like 11, 1200 Watts. I mean, it's, it's solid. Yes. And, and, and you weigh roughly how much? Oh, do you want to guess? 150, 
five. Keep going. Keep 165. Going, keep going. Probably. Yeah. Probably like a hundred and uh, hundred seventy, hundred seventy five. Okay. Okay. Like 70. Uh, when I went to Mexico, I was the heaviest I've been in a, in a minute. I was 80 kilos. Uh huh. Uh huh. Power. And I think, yeah, yeah, that was like just doing that anaerobic stuff. And like you cut out that volume and put on that muscle and yeah, it's easier to hold weight. I love pictures from the start of individual pursuit efforts because it looks very similar to like a like deadlift competition of just, just it f- is so much torque. Um, and the, the facial expressions yeah, crack me up. Paint a picture for us, if you would, about this Montana training facility. You know, we've, we've had a few, <laughs> we've had a few photos on villainous.com. Some people may have seen that, but you know, just, just trying to juxtapose for me, like the, I'm just thinking about how, you know, Philippe Ogana has been training and, and the facilities he's working in and, ah. and what the Montana quote unquote gym looks like, because it's, it's a barn as far as I can tell, right? A, a high ceiling. Yeah. Like you could drive a tractor in there, probably do drive a tractor in there. Uh, we, yeah. Uh, there were some balers parked in there over the winter. <laughs> so before we left, we had to move stuff out. Um, and like, yeah, that's part of the winterizing process is to get the balers in there. Um, but yeah, so we had like, what else did we have? We had a squat rack. Um, Christina's dad brought over a swamp cooler. I don't know if you, if you know what that is. Yeah. I'm from New Mexico. We're big fans of this. Great. Yes. Huge. That was like, that was clutch through the summer. Um, so we had a swamp cooler and then we had like the two, two turbos. So she has her bike on the, on, you know, her road bike up. And then I had, uh, my track or road bike up. Um, and then we had a dip, like, you know, a dip stand, Yep. like doing weighted, weighted dips. Um, we have a glute hand machine. So like, uh, you can do back extensions, you can do glute ham extensions it's one of the ones where like you lock your feet in the back and then there's a a platform like a rounded platform on the front so that your knees balance on it or your waist balance on it balances on it if you're doing back extensions um and then we had a squat rack we had a cable pulling machine i feel like that might be about it we had some some yoke yoke walk like straps we have a sled um so all that kind of stuff. Chris is really big on posterior chain. So like doing deadlifts, back extensions, tons of hamstring work. We, we've, we both really like, cause just like what you said, a standing start is a deadlift. It's like the exact same motion. Well, and the entire body is involved. And yeah. so it's not like you just isolate some muscles. The whole thing has to be rigid and strong and able to deal with, put out high torque how much simulation was there, if any, for the the speed of the start? Are you were, you, was it, were any of these efforts trying to be excl- explosive at all, like you know, consciously moving quickly, or is it more just the? Uh, it was the, more the, the strength. Okay. Yeah, we didn't do a ton of like plyometric stuff. Uh-huh. Um, it was more just like just the sheer speed because like or the sheer strength because if you can get stronger like you're going to be able to move the same weight faster. That's part of it. And then you're going to be able to go, if you go the same speed, you're going to be able to go the same speed and have it be less fatiguing towards the back end. And then tell me about the transition from that 
huge effort at the start to settling into your cruising altitude and then and then the the finish like how how do you break down the effort of four kilometers i mean do you, do you see it in pieces or is it all one one fluid thing no it's definitely in pieces um and i think i've gained a better appreciation i don't is it too far to go ahead and say like you know that i i had a failed attempt before that i got the record in no, mexico that's, that's great that's one of my questions i've got yeah. laid out here yeah i feel like i got a much better appreciation like you know, after, after failing that and kind of thinking about the whole thing as one, instead of thinking about like, okay, there's the start, there's the first 2k and then there's the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, like having, you know, Christina's done a ton of pursuits as well. And so I think what, after I failed that first day, like having her sit down and be like, okay, you need to think about these three things. Um, and really thinking about the first 2k as a separate ride from the second 2k was huge because it's like, you know, I think the hour record's probably similar where like the first two thirds, you feel great. And then it's really like, it can come apart big time. The last, like the last K, the last 1.5. But I remember like after Berlin worlds, that was one thing Gary Sutton said to me was like, look, man. He didn't say man, he said mate. He's Australian. <laughs> yeah. But he was like, oh, you know, you're two and a half K world champion. And I was like, yeah, you know, that's a good point. Like, it doesn't matter. But, uh, you know, what do we do? To, what do you do to improve the last K and a half? And I think the answer comes from like doing something differently in the first half, for sure. Yeah. Now, in retrospect, it makes a nice story that, yeah, the first the first attempt you failed, but then you came back and recovered and you tried, tried again. But obviously you didn't know going into it that that was what was going to happen. I mean, you, you, you gave yourself a, uh, you know, the track time was booked for, for two attempts. Yeah. But I'm, am I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't like the plan was to like, Oh, I'm just going to go do one for show and maybe that one won't work. And so how do you go so deep on one day, come up short and then recover physically and mentally to just go bust out a world record 24 hours later. Yeah. I mean, yeah. After the first one, I was shattered. Uh, like, I mean, having like, you, you're right. Having dug that deep and being, you know, your immediate response is like, there's no way I can do that again. Like there's no way I can put myself through that again. Um, but yeah, having like both Chris and, uh, one of the other guys I met down there, Lamus Enrique, he's also, uh, you know, former Olympic road cyclist down there, but like, you know, Chris got me off the bike, handed me a water and was like, okay, don't think about any, don't think about tomorrow. Like all you need to do right now is recover. Like, let's get you out of here. Let's get you back to the BNB, get some food, like just keeping me really focused and level on that process was huge. Cause like, it's easy to just let the despair take over and be like, Oh, like I'm going to come down or I'm just going to, you know, maybe, maybe break the world record, but still not get sub four. But you know, I just did this huge effort and like, yeah, the first thing I don't want to do is do it again the next day. <laughs> yeah. Now you said he, Chris was getting you back to the DMV. What does that mean? That's not the oh, department of B &B. motor vehicles. The B and B, sorry, yes, yeah, misheard, yes. So we, yeah, we had like a little B and B that we stayed at. Gotcha. Sorry, misheard. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think sh she did a really good job of like kind of balancing it out of like, okay, let's focus on the immediate and like 
get the things that need to happen now done. Like get your get your food, get your recovery started, get you off your feet, get you into some AC. And then, okay, what are some really basic, easy goals we can do tomorrow? And it was like, okay, we're going to get there a little earlier. Um, so that I think the way I had done it before was to get on the, on the first day was to get to the track at like 10 or something and then just stay there all day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that can be exhausting, you know, like just being at the track, being in that kind of tense environment in that bubble. It's like, you're always a little bit on edge. Um, and like, you know, for a nap in between efforts, I'm like laying on a concrete floor, you know, it's not exactly right, <laughs> not right. optimal recovery. And so we, we got there earlier. Um, I had some standing start practice and we adjusted the gate a little bit. So that was another big thing. Um, the gate was like a little tilted and wasn't, wasn't as stable as it could have been. So, I mean, for her to notice that and for us to be able to fix that was huge. Um, and then the other two, so it was get there early, fix the gate. Um, and then, yeah, we came back in between the openers in the morning and the attempt in the afternoon and just kind of chilled out like, uh, just, you know, watch Netflix or whatever. (laughs) Uh It was nice. It was really, really nice to like come back and kind of decompress a little bit. And then, you know, on the, the effort really just like the first 2k that the execution of that was huge. Um, instead of like going out too hot and then fading really hard in the back, like I usually do, she was just like, okay, all you need to do is just go out and ride a good 2k. If you do that, regardless of what happens like that's a win let's just focus on that and i was like okay like i don't really have the, you know i was i was just pretty shattered and i was like you know that that seems easier than a 4k like let's just ride the first 2k and then Uh see what happens Uh so doing that and then you know obviously just focusing on the black line and really taking taking the time and the attention to each turn being like okay Every time you hit one, it's important. It's relevant. It matters. Make each one count. At that point, it's not two kilometers at a time. It's one turn at a time. Just a few exactly. meters at a time. And then you've got help by the side of the track of you know, physical signs letting you know whether you're on pace, ahead of pace, under pace. Yeah. Um, I had Brian Abers, a coach in Colorado Springs. Uh, he he's very vocal, very loud guy. So I had him yelling. Uh-huh. He, he basically the way it goes is someone yells times at you. So like if you come around, um, and you hear like four, six or four, eight, it means 14.8 seconds. So you have to have a little bit of a, you know, a realm of like what the, what the times are going to be for you to sort of use that. But that, that's always my preferred method. Uh-huh. Pretty easy. Uh-huh. Then you can, you're not having to look. You're just, psst. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And pulled it off first. And as of now, only person in history to go under four minutes. Congratulations. Yeah, man. Thank you. Now, now let's talk the, the world championship title, which in some ways is the same thing in some ways is a totally different thing. Uh, and that you're not racing the clock. There is obviously a clock, uh, which plays into the qualifiers of who you're racing. But once you've made it into the gold medal round, which you did, then it's just about beating the other person. 
So, you know, you right. and Ghana have gone back and forth. He's, you know, four-time world champion in the individual pursuit, not to mention, you know, two-time world time trial champion. He held the world record. You may correct me on this, but my notes say three times. Is that right? No, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, okay. A number of times. A, a fast, another fast gentleman. He came yeah. up, and it sounds funny to say he, that he came up short in qualifying, but by his standards, he was disappointed not to make the final match. So at, sure. at, at this point, are you thinking I've got it in the bag or is it not over until the proverbial fat lady sings? Yeah, I, I would say more the second one. Like I remember doing my qualifying and being like, oh, okay, that was a pretty good time. Um, you know, that was kind of right where I wanted to sit was like that 402 to 405. Um, but also in my qualifying, which I don't, there probably I don't think there was any video of the qualifying, but I, I got a really like well-timed catch on the person I was riding against. So like I was probably 10 meters behind the German that I raced when I finished. And that draft makes uh, a difference. Like you don't have to be like right on the wheel. Difference. Yeah. Yeah. No, even 10 meters, like I think uh, up to 40 meters back, it's like a measurable difference. So, I mean, for me to have that, that, and whether, you know, even just the proverbial carrot of like, oh, okay, I'm coming around a corner. There's that guy up there. Like, I'm going to go get that wheel. Um, you know, that mentally makes a huge difference. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I was, I was pretty stoked at that time, but I also knew that like, oh, okay. Like, you know, I'm going to be more tired the second round. There's also a lot. You know, I, I probably won't get that catch the second round. Um, and I also knew that when after I did qualifying, I still had, I think it was Milan and Imhoff, who were both super quick. And then Ghana also went in the last round. And I was like, oh, man, like there's or maybe it was all three of them in separate rounds. But I was like, oh, there's still some really fast guys. And then, uh, yeah, I remember like watching uh ghana you know just like do his characteristic style of like a really slow start just on a whopper gear yeah and just like winding up and just getting just faster every lap and you know they show the the placing like the current placing overall on the the timing so it's like when he starts off he's like you know 18th and then it's like ninth fifth Uh you know it's just like climbing every time and then Uh it's like it kind of stalls out around like, like second and third and he finished, uh, and got third. And I texted Christina. I was just like, Oh, Oh shit. Like this is a real possibility, you know? And she was like, just take a deep breath. Like again, focus on recovery. Like go get your stuff now. Like just go back to the hotel, chill out. Nothing you can do right now. You know? And I was like, okay, I just gotta like, just keep my act together for a little bit. And how much time you have between the qualifying and the final? Uh, man, it was probably four hours. Somewhere between like four and six hours, I'd guess. And are you, how do you meter your effort in the, in the qualifier versus the final? You don't. You can't. You don't. No. You go full send in the quals. Um, because like it's, it's such a it's such a risky move and like there's also no payoff you know like if you if you could 
if you could like, and I, you know, there's also, that only works if you're going absolutely dead last, or you know, without a doubt that everyone going after you is going to qualify below you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But like, if you could control your tents, you know, to be able to like <laughs> slot right into second, it's uh-huh. like, oh, okay, cool. Like I saved 12 kilojoules like, <laughs> what? for what, man, uh-huh. you know, like, or, or you do that, you save your 12 kilojoules and you qualify fifth. And then like, you're just, you're out, you're done. That's uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. So, so you're, yeah, you're, I mean, all, I think, you're all in. Hundred percent. And then you have you to come go back wherever you qualify, and then you you're all in again. Exactly. Yeah. One thing I enjoyed, I enjoyed your columns very much. Both the uh, product sub four, we're you know getting ready for the world record, and then you're writing about the uh, world champs. And one thing I enjoyed about that latter section was what you're doing before races. It's like just riding around on your bike outside, um, and mm. and doing your yeah. your. I can't remember what, how you described it, but something like, you know, you know the stoplight standing start warmups were just, yeah. You know, and I was wondering like what, what the conversation is like between yourself and, you know, whoever is with you there from USA Cycling as far as what the, not just what the preparation is before an event, but just like the logistics of, you know, who is getting where, you know, cause we think of like world tour cycling of, like the, the giant buses pull up and everything is orchestrated and then the riders or the athletes and their the door opens and they get out right at the start of the competition. They get on the bike that's been prepped for them and off they go. And, and, and you're oh, just geez. out there sprinting stoplights, you know, on your road bike on the way to the track. Like what, what if you get a flat? Is there people that are getting nervous? Like where, where's Ashton? Why isn't he being, <laughs> where's his handler? You know, um, just out in the wild. Is that even a thing? I feel like it's less of a thing. Um, I've sort, I mean, you know, we've been doing this for multiple years now. So everyone just kind of like, oh, like Ashton just kind of does his own thing. You know, I show up on, on a bike, I've got a pump, I've got a flat kit, I've got, you know, everything I would use in Montana. Um, and so it's not, I don't, it's not a huge issue, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I, I was roommates with Gavin. He kind of knows how I operate. So he's just like, oh yeah, Ashton's just like, you know, taking off around Belgium, like he'll probably come back with some chocolate and like, <laughs> you know, tell me about how he ate some fries or like whatever. Um, you know, so like Gap's pretty used to that. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, if I'm riding to the track, like I get a flat, you know, either I just stop and fix it and it takes a couple minutes. Um, usually I'd tell like, well, Rob Stanley was kind of uh, the men's coach there along with Gary. And so it would just be like, oh, okay, this is what time we have track. We're going to show up at this time because I wasn't the only person riding the track. Yeah, it looked like you're having some fun group rides, like going to Kortrick and yeah. getting some snacks there yeah. in Belgium. Yeah, the outside group rides are fun and like exploring is really fun. Um, but I, I feel like, you know, in, in the past, I've sort of established that I'm like mostly responsible. And like if it's a track session, I'm not going to miss it. I'm going to be ready for it. So. It, it worked out okay. Sure. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to imply your liability of like you're just going to disappear. And, <laughs> and, oh, that was today. Oh my. You know, but, but yeah, oh, yeah. Sometimes no, like things no. can happen with it. Yeah, it's flat tire, whatever. But I guess and they, just, I, you I just would build say enough staff, time in. The staff does a great job of communicating of like, okay, this is what time you need to do this thing. Like you've got you guys have got massages at this time, this time, this time. Like you know, they do a good job of telling us where we need to be when. They make it pretty easy. Sure. 
Sure. Yeah, it's just it's just a fun juxtaposition to think about how carefully controlled everything is on the track of like the you know tire pressure and everything's clean and precise and nothing is going on except the competition. Whereas, yeah, doing your sprint warm ups and traffic is that's a a bit more free. Well, and that was one thing uh, that I actually to think about um, was that because of the bike I was on uh, the Ar- the new Argon. Yes. I didn't have any spare wheels. And Gary asked me, you know, after the quals, he was like, do you have an extra wheel set? Like, what do you do if you get a flat? And I was like, uh, I've got extra tires. <laughs> and he was like, what are you going to do with those? And I was like, uh, ask to borrow a wheel from someone. Like, I don't know, but it was, it worked out. Okay. No yeah. flats. Yeah. Worked out just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Rainbow Jersey to tuck in the suitcase for the way home. Yeah. So tell me about your thoughts on the, the, I'm just curious about, you know, Ashton Lambie going forward, but, but two parts, uh, one the track champions league, you know, what, what, uh, if that holds an interest to you as, as a spectator or as a participant, like, is that a good, is that a good thing for, for track cycling? I don't know enough about it to like have a firm opinion on whether it's a good thing or not. I think it's a good thing. I mean, it seems like all the riders that do it are really stoked and everyone's excited to have more opportunities to race. Um, but I could also see it, you know, in a little bit of a negative impact on like, I, I would say like, you know, your stand in six days because it seems like it's kind of the same format. Um, but honestly, like I, I don't really race mass start. Um, so not super applicable. Sure. Sure. I mean, the whole thing is designed to be easy viewing on television. And I can't think of a more like I love individual pursuit and I get bored watching qualifiers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. It does seem that there is trying to bring some of the party atmosphere of the six days, whether that's the, the light show or held in the evenings totally. or, or very short events. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see where that, where that goes and whether that will be expanded. Yeah. Or, one, uh, yeah, From, yeah, your your yeah. your uh, you know friend and sometimes roommate Gavin Hoover is you know talking about how, especially coming after the Olympics and World Championships, uh, how the Champions League was fun, in that just like being in the pit instead of being super stressed out because it's you know so such That's high stakes huge, man and like That's nobody's talking like um, it was like yeah this was like it was cool it was a party like yeah we're racing hard. Um, yeah, but, uh, so I think that, that was sort of a, a fun thing about this new style thing because it's not yet, yeah. the, you know, not that it'll necessarily ever be, but it's not the most prestigious thing, but like, it's a, it's a cool bike race and yeah, it's yeah. Fun, to, fun to see some new formats tried. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think everyone's excited about new formats being tried and then like, you know, any, any like more exposure for the sports always good. And if the riders are having fun, you can't ask for much more, you know, that's, that's part of it. Yeah. I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Like I realize that the individual pursuit is a, is an indi- you know, by definition, an individual thing, yeah. but saying like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not a, a mass start guy. I think you would do just fine as you've proven in the past. So uh, yeah, uh, I, I think that, you know, I, I'd enjoy watching you in there. That's all I'm, that's all I'm saying. If, if fashion makes a oh, track thanks, champions man. league appearance, I think that'd be a, a fun <laughs> thing. Now I, I appreciate you being generous with our time. We're, we're running a little long, but I want to want to hear you talk about something else that has nothing to do with track cycling directly at least which is the rsv resolute this trailer that you were yeah uh, constantly the building the like the death star it's not yet 
fully, fully furnished or, or finished, but, but yeah, give us a, a visual picture of, or a mental picture of, of what this enterprise is. Yeah. So we bought uh, a trailer, you know, like a, like a pull behind, not a fifth wheel, but like a pull behind trailer, um, from my parents and it was we, we being pretty, Christina Birch and yourself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Me and Christina Birch bought this trailer and you know, when I was moving out of Nebraska, we did a little bit of work on it there. Um, we call it, we call it a bender. We just, you know, went all in <laughs> for four days and it was like, we, cause we, we got into it and you know, like it was kind of like, Oh, you know, there's a little bit of water damage in front. And then, you know, we started pulling off the, the siding and, or like, you know, the, the, the wallpaper and everything It's like, Oh, I can take my finger and poke all the way through the wall and touch Uh-oh. like the aluminum. <laughs> and it was like, Oh shit. Like this is going to be, this is going to be worse than we thought. And so, so yeah, we up like peeling the aluminum siding off the whole front, basically just like took the front of the trailer, peeled it back, built a whole new frame, um, new insulation, new, uh, walls. And, and that was like, we just got it to a point where it was like, it's not moldy, it's roadworthy tires and there's a mattress in it. We can sleep in it. And then we were like, all right, let's go to Montana. And so we went to Montana. Um, and then, yeah, I would say we started a little bit more in earnest there. Um, where it's just like, oh yeah, the door blew off on the way to Montana. So, uh, <laughs> the design and built a new door, which was super cool. Um, that fit shockingly it fit. Um, but yeah, I mean, we basically like, you know, piecemeal kind of like remodeled it. Like Christina's got a really good design sense, um, and like way better aesthetics than I do. And I've got like a, a decent woodworking background so we can kind of put a lot of stuff together. Um, but man, it's been a super fun project. Like, yeah, we're getting, getting to work together and like build uh, a space together is just, it's a blast. Yeah, we really enjoy it. And it's been a good balance of like, like, you know, oh, we're going to, you know, build a cabinet here. Um, you know, something that's that's fun and really aesthetic. And like, then the other half of it is like, oh, we need to turn the heater on. Like, how do we do that? What's that system look like? Where's there a hornet's nest in the system? Why is it shorting out? You know, like <laughs> all these, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun balance of like, there's always something new to kind of learn and explore. Tell me about your plans for, for next year. How do you, how do you follow up on a year like this year and, and how, how does the resolute figure in? Are you going to be living out of this thing some of the time, all the time, part of the time? And yeah, what is, what does next year look part like? Part of the time. Yeah. We're, we're still not sure like how much of it's going to be in the resolute yet. Um, we've got some big stuff in the works. Um, it's going to be a lot of gravel. It's going to be a lot of ultra distance. Um, yeah. New teams, new sponsors, exciting stuff, man. Can you talk about the new team and uh, get, go into more detail there, or do we have to leave, no. it, leave it on a cliffhanger for now? We gotta leave it on a cliffhanger. Okay. Stay we, tuned. We, we'll come back. We'll come on when we can talk more about it. Okay, that sounds great, and I hope we can continue with uh, whatever your next project is. If you'll continue writing columns for us, I I know I would very much enjoy that, and our readers would too. Yeah. So hopefully, we can keep that. Oh, it's super that fun. Big I ball like rolling. Too. All right. Yeah, man. Well, Ashton Lambie been great been fun thanks sir for your time appreciate it yeah thanks for having me and congratulations on a heck of a year thank you
All right, folks, that will do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. To get the recipes from Bijou from this week and from his other goodies he has cooked up, and to read Ashton Lambie's columns on his pursuit, trials, and tribulations, just check the notes of the podcast here or head on over to velonews.com and search either one of those gentlemen by name. My name is Ben Delaney, and I thank you for listening to the Velo News Podcast. <laughs>